How good do you have to be to go to heaven? How good? Do you have to be, like, pretty good? Do you have to be gooder than the person you're sitting next to? Do you have to? Who said that? Yeah, Billy said that. Billy, um, uh, please keep your comments to yourself. I have the microphone. It's very disruptive, especially when it's the right answer. No, no, no. Being good, even really good, is not good enough. Billy, you're right. I hate it when you're right. You have to be perfect. So is that good news, Bill, or bad news? It's bad news. Billy, you're not perfect, are you? Of course not. Where's your wife? She will substantiate that. (laughs) Nobody is perfect. So listen, if the prerequisite for entrance into heaven is perfection, and it is because God is perfect, heaven is a perfect place. It cannot be occupied and inhabited by imperfect people and still retain its character of perfection. We would corrupt and defile it. So this is the indisputable requirement, perfection. But that's terribly bad news for us because nobody here, no one in our life experience has ever fit the bill. Nobody is perfect, and so that's a big problem. But you say, yeah, but God, surely he'll give us good grades for trying. He'll, he grades on a curve. He didn't give us 10 commandments. He gave us 10 suggestions. And, and, and so surely, if I just do the best I can, surely on that basis, a benevolent and compassionate God will allow me entrance into heaven. Will he? Let's take a look. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. We're in Romans, as you know. And this is the 38th time we've been in Romans, and we're not close to finishing. Have you ever heard of something so terrible in your life? I mean, it's just just rich. So today, we'll look at Romans 10, beginning in verse 5. We'll look at a few verses. Look what it says. Paul, of course, speaking. The audience is primarily Jewish. Jewish. In this case, unsaved Jews. That's why Romans 10 is impregnated with quotations from the Old Testament. You will see it because Paul is relating to the Jewish audience. So here's a quotation from Moses. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, remember, righteousness is being right with God. Think of it that way. The man who practices righteousness, which is based on law, God's law, delivered to Israel through Moses. Nothing wrong with it. It's a wonderful reflection of his moral and ethical character. Moses said, the one who practices, the one who attempts to be right with God, by doing the law, shall live, shall live by that righteousness. The one who seeks to be right with God by the doing of the law will in fact live by that measure of righteousness. If he's chosen as a means of being right with God, the doing of the law, then it is by the perfect doing of the law that he will live or die. And Paul is probably alluding to something Moses said way back in Leviticus 18.5, so you shall keep my statutes 
and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. So, has anyone done the requirements of God, the law of God, the commandments of God perfectly? No. So you see, we're still confronted with this problem once again. If the requirement in order to be right with God is the doing of the law he requires, and if nobody has ever perfectly met the requirement, that means nobody, nobody qualifies for entrance into heaven. On one occasion, the Lord Jesus was asked a question. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 22. Here it is. Teacher or rabbi, which is the great commandment in the law? You remember this. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said, this is the great and foremost commandment. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He summed up the totality of the Ten Commandments in this, the principle of love, vertically towards God, horizontal, horizontally towards others. So I asked the question, who here has perfectly manifested love towards God and love towards others? Please raise your deceived hand. No, no, nobody has loved perfectly. If this is the summation of the law, we are all lawbreakers. So if our chosen means of being right with God so as to gain entrance into heaven has to do with our own effort to be righteous through the doing of the law, it's effort that's ill-conceived. We all fall short of the glory of God. No one's going to make it. So I ask this question. Is there another way? If there is no other way to be right with God, we are all dismally in trouble. There is no hope. Is there another way? Yes, there is. Look at the first phrase in the next verse. It's verse 6. But, that means contrast now, but the righteousness based on faith. Let's just stop for a second. But the righteousness based on faith. Paul is speaking of two ways to be right with God. The first is a dismal failure. That's the right standing with God based upon our efforts to be moral and virtuous and to do all the good stuff God wants us to do. That first means of righteousness leads to terrible failure. But the second, right standing with God, being okay with God, is based on faith in the work he has accomplished for our redemption. Wouldn't it be great if that was true? Wow. Can you imagine? I know it's like a dream. Can you imagine being absolutely okay with God? Can you imagine receiving this verdict? Case dismissed. Can you imagine being considered as if we had not sinned merely by virtue of the fact that we trust in what God has provided for us to be right with him. Wouldn't that be? I'm sorry for, for uh, embarrassing myself and you, even to imply such a thing exists. It's just wishful thinking, isn't it? It's far-fetched. This, this means of being right with God is it's just a fantasy. It's unavailable to us. Isn't that true? No, it is not true. Look. But the righteousness based on faith, we're still in verse 6, speaks as follows. Do not say, 
in your heart. Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? You know what Paul said? It's not a dream. It's not fanciful. It's not distant. This way of being right with God is not wishful thinking. It isn't unavailable. It's near. You don't have to exert yourself through some superhuman effort to somehow climb some ladder to get into heaven so as to drag Christ down to earth. This is already done. It's called the incarnation. Nor do you somehow have to find a way. It's impossible. But nor do you have to find some impossible way of getting into the place of the dead, the abyss, so as to bring Christ up because he's already been brought up by the Father. That's his resurrection. So Paul is saying, oh, now everything necessary in order for one to be designated okay with God right with God, is not a distant, wishful possibility. It's a reality through the incarnation and resurrection of the Lord. Through the incarnation, he came near. Through the resurrection, he won victory over death. He is available to us. Attaining righteousness with God through faith in what Jesus Christ has done is very near. So it continues in verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. The message concerning faith, not works, faith placed in the finished work of Christ is within easy reach. For God has brought it near in himself. He is as near, think about this, as our hearts and mouths How near is Jesus to the unsaved sinner? Just open the door and let him in. Do you mind me telling you, you can be saved in a matter of seconds. That's how near he is. You don't have to exert some superhuman effort. You don't have to go on a distant journey. You don't have to wait years. You don't have to give a list of accomplishments. You don't have to parade your own virtue and merit around before the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything necessary for you to be saved from his wrath, to be considered not in the wrong, but in the right. Everything necessary has been brought near when Jesus Emmanuel came near. And if you sense that in your heart it's empty without him, you have room in your heart for him and you confess it first to him and then to others. My goodness, he'll take you up. Confession means agreement. The opposite of confession is denial. If you cease to deny the reality of what Jesus has done for you and for me, if you simply confess it as being true, that's just how near is the message of salvation to you and to me. Here it is. Here's what's required. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, what? Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What must be believed and confessed is that Jesus is Lord. See, that means he has authority to forgive sins. Why in the world would you even mess with him (laughs) if he wasn't Lord? He has authority to forgive sins. Not only that, he has the authority to grant us access to his Father. Why in the world would I seek a mediator of lower rank than me for crying out loud? 
But he is the great mediator. He's the Lord. And not only that, he as Lord has the authority to grant us eternal life. He's Lord of life, demonstrating victory over the last enemy, death. Why am I messing around with anyone making promises to me they cannot keep? But he's Lord of life, eternal life. It has to be confessed. Also, what must be believed and confessed is just what it says. God raised him from the dead. Did you know the resurrection? of Jesus Christ is the very center of the Christian faith. Every other faith perspective is devoid of the resurrection. They do not have anyone who has demonstrated victory over death. What the Lord Jesus did in rising from death is very, very central to our faith because what he did confirms everything he said. Don't you tell me stuff that you can't back up. You know what one of the things is that he said? He said, if I live, you, what? Shall live also. Is this just lip sir? No. He backed it up. He confirmed what he said. That's just one thing he said. By the great one thing he did. The resurrection. He rose up from death. Folks, to be saved, one must confess not only that Jesus lived, but that Jesus lives. Otherwise, you don't have a personal walk. You don't have a personal relationship that's going to begin now if you've never accepted him and extend on into eternity. In other words, you have to see Jesus as being more than a martyr. You have to see him as being a victor. If he doesn't have victory over death, what guarantee is that you will ever have it? Don't you see? That's what has to be confessed. Why, why, why? Verse 10. See, with the heart, a person believes, resulting in being right with God, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. Whoa. Wait just a second. I thought salvation was free, all of grace. Does this last phrase mean that confession is a condition of salvation? No. It means that confession of what you believe is a result of salvation. A person does not confess Christ in order to be saved. He confesses Christ because he is saved. Look at here. I know we have many timid evangelists in the room. I understand that. But the hardest, most difficult commandment for you and I to comply with would not be tell others about me. It would be don't say a word about me. I guarantee if you're inhabited by the King of Kings, his spirit indwells you. It's going to eke out the truth of eternal life and forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ is going to come out in one way or another, even through the most timid of us. By the way, the first act of confession a new believer can manifest is nonverbal. It's right there in the baptistry. It's the way without even words to express nonverbally, I belong to Jesus. He is my Lord. I Rest neither on my merits nor anyone else's. I rest on the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He and he alone for the forgiveness of sin. When a person goes down into the water, that person is identifying with the death of the Lord Jesus. When a person comes up, that person is identifying with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is the first step in confessing Jesus as Lord. I must tell you, if you know him but haven't confessed it through baptism, do yourself a favor. 
and the rest of us because we rejoice in it. Sign up for baptism for crying out loud. So confession, important. For the scripture says, verse 11, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. It also could be translated, will not be put to shame. When? At the final judgment. When we stand before the judge of the universe, almighty God, we will not be put to shame. How? By a guilty verdict. No way. We will be acquitted of all our sins. Look, folks, we all have a lot to be ashamed of, don't we? Let's go around the room and share some of that stuff. Wouldn't that be, like, cool? Are you kidding me? Everyone in this place has secrets, particularly secret thoughts. They would prefer not to be publicized. But God knows everything, right? He's omniscient. What if he pulls a fast one? What if after a life of living for him, believing on him and confessing him and so on, we get to final judgment, and God parades on big screens bigger than these all of our unspoken thoughts. You talk about shrinking in shame. Oh, my goodness. Don't worry about it. That's never going to happen because God has cast all sin, including the ones we just think, behind his back, never to go back there to retrieve it. Therefore, at the final judgment, there will be no cause for any of us to be disappointed for any, who have put our faith in him, for any of us to feel ashamed who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus, for God has cast all our sin behind our back. In fact, on the cross, the Lord Jesus bore all our guilt and shame. And this is true, the text says, for whoever believes in him, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. Holy Toledo, that's saying a lot because there like is a difference, don't you think? You know, one group is better looking than the other. I'm not saying. You just imagine. There are big differences. Are you kidding me? Cultural, ethnic, historic, and religious, the whole deal. But with respect to salvation, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Why not? The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Folks, there's not two different. God doesn't have two different methods of salvation for different ethnic groups. We spoke about this last week. There isn't a double covenant. Jews are not saved apart from Jesus and through Moses. Jesus is not for just for Gentiles. Jesus is for everybody. Well, he's just one Lord is Lord of all. God doesn't have different methods of salvation for different ethnic groups. And since there's no difference between Jew and Gentile in sinfulness, there certainly is no difference between Jew and Gentile in salvation. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved i got to tell you something. To call on the name of the Lord means that the one calling is in trouble. It's a cry for help. That's what it is. The one who realizes he's got a he, she has a big problem. It's desperate. The one who realizes he owes a debt to God. He cannot pay. The one who realizes that in spite of his or her goodnesses, each has fallen far short of perfection and therefore 
in, in, at the final judgment, at that uh, hearing before Almighty God, none of us are going to have good standing. The one who realizes when it comes to trial, he or she is going to be condemned. That one cries out to God. That one says, oh, God, please, please don't give me what I deserve. Oh, God, please don't be fair to me. Oh, no, God, please be merciful to me. A sinner whose efforts to please you might have gotten me closer than the next guy. But what's the difference? We all still fall so far short of your perfection. We're in the same sinking boat. So this one cries out, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's why, oh, God, I cannot save myself. Please save me. Thank you for providing everything required so as to do that. By sending your son, irreplaceable, one of a kind, only begotten, sinless, to die for me. End of story. No! And then to rise up from death. First fruits of life from death guaranteeing me to the extent that my faith I identify with him will also rise up to new life in Christ Jesus. Simple, isn't it? Have you asked God to do something like that? Have you cried out to him like that? I hope so. Folks, today is uh, the beginning of Sukkot. Did you know that? That's why you came, isn't it? So we could observe Sukkot. <laughs> it's one of the feasts of Israel also known as tabernacles. Sukkot means booths. It's a commemorative holiday. It's mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. You may not realize it, but you're going to go up to Jerusalem one day during Sukkot. So you might as well get familiar with this holiday because you're going to observe it. Feast of tabernacles. Booths. God ordained it. You can read this in Leviticus 23. I'm not making it up. I'm making some of it up, but not too much. And uh, God said, make booths, live in them uh, to commemorate the fact that when I liberated you from bondage in Egypt, when I delivered you after 400 plus years, I sustained you. You lived in booths during your wilderness journey for 40 years, but I sustained you. Did I not? I gave you food, water, and dwelling places. So construct booths, and people do that. Uh, Jewish people do that today. Here and in Israel, we construct booths. And we hang from it fruits and vegetables. We take meals in it. We don't have a solid surface ceiling. We, we leave it open so we can look up to the skies and remember Almighty God who delivered us from bondage and sustains us. It's kind of Thanksgiving. It's Jewish Thanksgiving. It begins tonight. It lasts seven days, seven full days. It's called Sukkot. And during this time, it's also kind of an agricultural feast. And during this time, prayers for rain are offered up to God in Israel in particular. Very, very passionate, uh, sincere prayers to God for rain. Because without rain, water, there would be no crops, you see. And what happens is that the high priest, in days of old, when a temple stood in Jerusalem, he would lead a very joyful procession. There would be uh, musicians and singers would follow him from the temple on a hill. They would descend to something called the Pool of of Siloam. Some of you have been there. 
When we go to Israel, we go to the pool of Siloam. By the way, I'm going in May. You want to go? Pack up. Yeah, it's as simple as that. What's the big deal? So, so, so we go to the pool of Siloam, and that's where the high priest would lead this procession. And there he would dip a golden pitcher into the water at the pool of Siloam. And uh, he would return back to the temple where there would be three blasts of silver trumpets. They would sound from the temple and they would be singing and marching and all the rest. Quite a celebration. Then on the seventh day, the final day of this seven-day holiday, oh my goodness, it would reach a climax. Choirs and musicians and feasting and joy and very fervent prayer for rain for the coming year so as to provide crops. This is on everyone's mind, rain as a necessity. Now, during this particular celebration, some 2,000 years ago, on this very last day of Sukkot, a voice rang out. It said, if any man is thirsty. Remember, water is the theme. That's the nature of going down to the pool of Siloam and dipping a golden pitcher and blowing trumpets and praying to God for water, for crops. And in this context, a voice cried out saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me. It's not the pool of Siloam. Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Whose voice was that? That's the voice of the Lord Jesus. It's recorded in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. During this time, a very key feast of Israel, one of the three pilgrim feasts, when rain waters on everyone's mind, when everyone is petitioning God for rain from on high, Jesus, in essence, said, I'm the answer to your prayers. I can save you now so that you will never thirst for salvation again. That Savior is not far off. He came near. He is Emmanuel. Do you know we are told something in John chapter 1, verse 14? I'll bet you're familiar with it. It says, and the word became flesh. The word is referring to whom? The Lord Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, which can be translated from the original language and tabernacled amongst us. If it was Hebrew, we would read, and the word became a sukkah for us. He became a temporary booth. He is preexistent deity. He existed from before time and will always be. But he became enfleshed, but not forever, just for a while, just like a temporary sukkah. Jesus became a sukkah for us. You see, he came near. Don't be saying, I don't get it. This is too far off. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Does not compute. I don't have a theology degree. I got to do this. I got to jump through. If you can believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that this Jesus, who was a sukkah in our midst, came 
suffered, died, was crucified, dead, buried, rose up from death, you shall be saved. And then we get to the last book of the Bible. Yeah, it's Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. Listen. Behold, the tabernacle, the sukkah of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his peoples, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Why not? Because the first things have passed away. I need to tell you something. Feast of Booths is the final, last feast of the seven feasts of Israel. It's the last ingredient in God's prophetic calendar, the one beginning tonight, Sukkot. And this last holiday is the most joyful of all. In fact, it is oftentimes referred to as the season of our joy. What a great way for things to end. Life is tough. We're subject to disease and accidents and evildoers and death. It hurts. We grieve. We mourn. We're lonely. We're without. We struggle on an international scale. You don't want to ruin your day, but I've never seen things as unsettled as they are. I mean, put your finger in any part of the world and something crazy is going on. Unbelievable. Best of our brain trust is trying to resolve all the conflict. I don't think they're doing such a good job. Are we ever going to get out of this mess we're in? Yeah, we're going to enter into the season of our joy. It's going to be the last experience and the one that is lasting for believers. It'll be the eternal season of our joy. It's the last experience in God's prophetic calendar. It's the final holiday. It's the most joyous of all. There will be singing and, yes, my Baptist friends, there will be dancing. <laughs> we will have rhythm in heaven. Unbelievable. We will celebrate the Lord Jesus. The tabernacle of God is among men. We will see him Face to face. He will be a sukkah in our midst. We will have intimate, personal, uninterrupted, undistracted, unending access to him. It is the season of our joy. I beseech you, make sure if God has stirred up your heart, even tonight, persuading you you cannot save yourself, you need outside help. Persuading you that God has provided it. He's come near. If he's stirring up your heart, you know you owe him a debt you cannot pay. You're separated from God. If you were to stand before him now, you know you wouldn't get an acquittal. You're not right with him. That's a hard thing. If you know this on your heart, be ready even tonight to confess Jesus as Lord. Risen from the dead, having won victory over sin. Yours and mine and everyone's. Whomever will believe on him. And if you do that tonight... No one in their right theological mind could guarantee smooth sailing. 
But those who are theologically sound could guarantee the best is yet to come, no matter what intervenes before it comes, because the final experience of the believer will be a season of joy that lasts forevermore. Please stand to your feet. Let me pray for the ones here who've not yet made this decision to seal the deal, to guarantee your eternity, to confess Jesus as Lord who suffered and died for sin and who alone has the authority to join your hands with his Father, to give you entrance into heaven and to cast all your sin behind his back. Could you just bow your heads and I want to pray. Lord Jesus, in the power of your spirit, we do not yet see you face to face, but you left us with another helper. You're the helper in heaven. Your spirit is the helper here on earth. Help us. Would you help those to get over the hump, to move from separation to reconciliation, to move from darkness to light, Oh, God, to move from being in the wrong with you to having right standing with you. Oh, God, would you move in the lives of some to open their heart to you and to confess you as their personal Savior and Lord, suffering, dying, rising from death, that that one may die to the old life and be raised up to new life. In the power of your spirit, Lord Jesus, we pray. You would do that work in people's lives tonight. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.